and welcome to episode 75 of the Night Gallery podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're talking about There Aren't Any More McBains. Uh, it's, based, it's a teleplay by Alvin Sapinsley, based on the short story by One by Two by Three by Stephen Hall, and directed by John Newland. And it's uh, a, t- a moment when, once again, Night Gallery heads into the realms of black magic and monsters. Our next painting tells the story of a young man whose major in school is philosophy, but whose extracurricular labors take him into the area of black magic. And for this, you don't get a degree, but the commencement ceremony is a guess. See for yourself, as we offer you, there aren't any more McBain's. Our story follows uh, three young men. Uh, Andrew McBain, played by Joel Gray. Ellie Green, played by Daryl Larson, and also Mickey Standish, who's played by Barry Higgins. These are all men who have, well, Ellie and Mickey, Ellie and Mickey have both finished university, but uh, Andrew, who's older than them, hasn't. Andrew's struggling to complete his studies in uh, ancient religion, and um, he's not going to graduate yet. He's rich. Or he would be rich, except for his uncle, a man who is um, basically angered that it appears that uh, McBain is not using his skills to complete his studies. And he, although he has an inheritance, he's, he's going to make sure that McBain is, uh, um, loses that inheritance unless he gets a job within six months. To be honest with you, McBain isn't that bothered by this. He's uh, He seems to be a man who's got a bit of a plan. He's obsessed with an ancestor from the 17th century. A man who could kill at will. From a great distance far away, he could kill his enemies. Uh, a man, and also he, that, that man's uh, wife. But then something got him. And McBain is has got his notebook, but it's missing 10 pages. And those 10 pages hopefully will tell him what he needs to know. The six months come, runs up, and when the uncle reappears and his two friends are there to witness this moment when McBain apparently loses everything, he isn't bothered, he isn't worried. He has a plan. Well, we weren't really sure you'd be here. The campus looks like a ghost town. Haven't I always kept my promises? You remember my wicked old uncle? Forgive and pity him, gentlemen. Because the college switchboard was closed for the Christmas holidays, he was unable to disinherit me by telephone. He's been forced to drive 15 miles to do so in person. He's cold and he's he's grumpy and he must be afforded every consideration. Now, you wouldn't really do that, would you, Mr. Porter? It's not working. Oh, but I am. Assiduously. Where? Here. Who pays your salary? Oh, you mean do I have a job? No. Thank you. The bank opens tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. At 10.05, you will be written off for all time as any connection of mine. Uncle? Uncle? 
Indeed, he does seem to have a rather unusual plan because the second the uncle leaves, he is then ravaged and mauled by what seems to be a monster who rips out his throat. But that isn't where our story ends. Instead, what happens next is more disturbing. Ellie gets a warning, a message from, 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 to be honest with you, the messenger boy is actually Mark Hamill from Star Wars. But he gets a message uh, to go and find Mickey because he's in danger. When he finds him, Mickey's already dead. And not only that, Ellie is now next on the list, stalked by a seeming beast who will not stop. It smashes windows and doesn't quite get to him in time. Ellie manages to escape. Hides in a laundry room while the the beast smashes windows to try and get in. He goes to to find McBain and try and find out exactly what's happening. Who is this monster with red eyes and massive claws that tries to attack him? McBain explains exactly what's happening. The monster that he's unleashed to kill his uncle cannot be sated and will go through and kill everybody that McBain holds in any kind of regard or love. He's already given up Mickey and now he's after Ellie too. There's nothing that can be be done to stop him. For what? We shall soon find out. What do you mean? I mean, when I read those words of Jedediah's, I realized what I'd called forth, and I tried to send it back, but there was no spell to vanquish it. It killed my uncle, my enemy, just as it had killed Jedediah's, and then it came to demand a friend as payment. I tried to refuse, tried to outwit it. I tried to somehow, somehow break the spell, but I couldn't. I gave it Mickey. Even then, I tried to save him. It's no use. And then you gave it me? But it didn't kill me. At the last minute, I called it back. But it... It didn't work. I, I, I couldn't... I couldn't bear it. Oh, God. It'll be coming now. This is the time of night that it always comes scratching at the door like a dog. The dog that you once thought you heard. And then... You know it's strange, Ellie. You think that flimsy door can hold it back? Eddie, what is it? What did Jedi create? What did you summon back? All the jealousy the Earth has ever known since the creation of man formed into the epitome of everything that is evil in that jealousy. As the monster bursts through the door, McBain and the last death attempt to save his friend gets between the, the beast and his fr- and, uh, and uh, Ellie. It appears to be, look like a witch, grizzled and charred, and, and with a with a with a hook nose and big talons. It emanates a strange red colour, and McBain throws himself at it. They kill each other, and Ellie is saved. But Mc, on the floor lies McBain, and next 
the charred remains of the monster. Both of them seemingly now headed together on a descent to hell. See, the story's very adult, really. It's um, it's a proper horror, you know, a, a monster that cannot be stopped stalking somebody and, and, and there's no real way of, of, of getting rid of it. And, you know, the, the, that old horror movie cliche, or not cliche, but trope of somebody having to, to die to save their friend. And that my fa- one of my favourite ideas in horror, something that, you know, like the grudge, anything from the grudge through to... Frankenstein touches on the idea that once something has started it can't be stepped away from and there's no way to kind of escape your fate originally the story was uh, well it was called by one by two by three which was a short story uh, written by Stephen Hall uh, back in 1913 it pops up in various publications now various horror anthologies mainly ones dealing with gothic horror um, you know, from the 1960s, uh, 1969, it was in uh, Horror Stories from Tales to be Told in the Dark, which is probably where this was picked up from. Uh, but it still pops up now and again from various presses, mainly because it's, well, I think it's out of copy right now. Originally, the story was based in the wilds of Scotland for its climax, but also was based, hence the name McBain, but also was based in Cambridge for the university. Uh, this has been moved, in this case, to New England, and probably for the best. Night Gallery does indeed struggle, uh, well, with the wilds of Scotland, but also for, with, with any kind of location in Cambridge, is very, and uh, all those, those university towns in the UK are very distinctive. Uh, instead, it's based in New England, but to the credit of the of, uh, well, of Alves, of uh, the director of photography, uh, Gerald Finnan, and to director John Newland, the um, the actual skill that they've made to make it look completely different to how you would imagine plays very well. It actually looks like New New England rather than what it is, which is obviously a Californian lot and various indoor sets. The acting's good. Um, Joel Gray's McBain is a little bit OTT. He's quite. Um, He's quite hyper and and quite uh, uh, over the top. He's a uh, he's a man who who uh, he's very squeaky in truth, but he's okay. And you know he, he has to be the kind of man who would you know do, dedicate himself in a, a Lovecraftian way to these ancient dark arts. Um, the real skill is uh, Daryl Larson's Ellie, a man who. Um, is equally initially quite arrogant but very likable and confident uh, he, he he does seem like the, um, the kind of man who has just finished a degree and has the benefits of education but also is likable that when the horrors do come you you, you really you know you hope you, you hope that uh, he doesn't get caught by the beast with claws and bright red eyes um, as I said, while I was just discussing it, uh, maybe I should have left it for a bit of trivia afterwards. A very young Mark Hamill does pop up as a uh, as a messenger, and uh, there's a very very brief exchange which shows, you know, to be fair to him, he's extremely likable, and um, where they they quickly discuss Ellie's rather unusual name as a girl's name. Um, 
it's uh, you know it's it's throwaway and it, it just to lighten the mood. It doesn't really the mood, I should say. It doesn't really fit with the story as such, but it's it's quite pleasant and and, and, and does help. Um, director. Uh, our director John Newland uh, wasn't picked again to direct another Night Gallery segment and the main reason for that was because he ran over and the main reason for that was because uh, well I let the man say in his own words apparently Larson and Gray had real difficulty with the script Larson says this about Gray Joel couldn't believe they were expecting him to do all of that nonsense dialogue. I mean, it was just gibberish, this endless shit, while the monster is pounding on the door, and I swear to God, Joel just didn't bother to learn it. He showed up and did did not know his lines, and I'm off camera for all of it, crying and screaming and cowering, and every once in a while, poor Joel would just look at me and crack up. John Luland was tearing his hair out, with an extra day or two of shooting just to get through that last, absolutely marathon scene. It was just hilarious. Well, it might have been hilarious for uh, for Daryl and Joel, but I'm not convinced it was hilarious for Newland when he lost his directing gig for any more Night Gallery episodes. And it's a shame as well. It has a real good feel to it. It's out of all the episodes, a lot of them do feel quite um, TV-ish and focus a lot on um, on the dialogue. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's a very very particular craft making TV like this. Uh, but in terms of the, uh, in terms of what 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 he brought to it was he gave it a bit more scope. It, it was dramatic. The camera moved a lot. It has a lot more action and motion, particularly the scene when uh, Ellie is being chased by our monster through his apartment block. There's a there's a real sense of horror and pace and excitement to that scene. There is a problem with um, with some of the makeup though. I think the idea was to make our witch kind of like a Suspiria kind of thing, um, you know, like uh, mysterious and dangerous and otherworldly and a, a crone. But uh, rather than looking like something near the end of Suspiria, it looks more like something from the Wicked Witch of the West. Far too much light and colour. It works better. And I know two red eyes these days seem incredibly dated. I mean, you know, you look at something like The Fog now and it doesn't really hold up, but you really don't want to see as much as the beast as you as, as that. Interestingly enough, in the original story, <clears throat> it was more just a a black cat. You know, it was meant to be like this this ominous black cat in the in the distance that did its damage, and he didn't really see it. He didn't, you know, even the writer didn't bother explaining it. And it's a shame that um, that what that kind of idea wasn't used more. It was brought to the fore, and in the end, our beast just doesn't really cut it. It's just not as frightening as what your mind can pull up. Particularly, you know, it's obviously like a, a womanly hag rather than uh, with, with huge makeup and light flashing on it rather than something slightly more animalistic and frightening that way. Which is a shame. But still, it doesn't really detract from this incredibly powerful and strong owl of, of TV. Um... I'll Never Leave You Ever is um, romantic but chilling and this is far more primal and bestial. Uh, again, it shapes up what is a fantastic run in this series. Uh, probably, as we come to the end, the best run of stories from the lot. They do seem to group together in Night Gallery and uh, in this case, it comes with one of the most satisfying 
15 minutes of television that uh, Laird and Serlin managed to create. Haven't I always kept my promises? Okay, um, if you want to get hold of me, you can do. It's chris at twilightzonenetwork.com. You can uh, go to our website, www.thetwilightzonenetwork.com. There's all our articles and features and podcasts. There's also links to our Facebook page and our Twitter, so you can be updated about when the next uh, the next bits are coming online. Uh, or if you wish to speak to me directly, the easiest way to do that really is through my Twitter, which is at orange underscore monkey. Okay, that's it for this week. Next week, we've got a biggie, The Sins of the Fathers, um, a chilling tale, uh, and one that really focuses on what the evil that men can do. (laughs) 